0: Hey, welcome to the Salt Company. If, uh, if we've not met, my name's Austin, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Commons Church, and excited to be here with you tonight. Hey, if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6, it'll be on the screens for you, too. So, hey... Uh, Listen, as you turn in there, so I've, in the past, I've shared a story of a guy uh, that I went fishing with a lot in college. His name is Chance, and uh, we, we fished all the time. I went to school in Arkansas, so there was a bunch of places right around our, our, our university where we could fish, and so we went often, we went all the time, and uh, there was this one particular place that was pretty swampy that, uh, that we would fish in, and there was one day that we were out there, we pulled up in uh, his pickup truck, kind of backed right up to the bank of the... Pond, lake, swamp—not really sure what to call it—and uh, and we started fishing. And it, as soon as we got there, uh, I noticed uh, about you know it would it, be about back where the back wall of this auditorium is, um, where I noticed there was this log floating and. It it just looked like, I mean, we're in Arkansas, so I just knew this wasn't the case. Am I getting feedback? Are y'all hearing feedback? Okay. I just was like, is that in my head, you know, or is it happening in the room? So we're all in it together. That's good. Well, I looked at this log, and I was like, that looks like an alligator just kind of floating there, but we're in Arkansas, so there's no alligators. So, but I said it to Chance, I was like, dude, that log totally looks like an alligator. That'd be nuts, right? And he's like, yeah, we're in Arkansas, though. So we just keep fishing. And uh, we fished for probably 45 minutes, caught nothing. Normally, we'd catch, you know, a bunch, because, you know, we're good fishermen, but uh, we didn't catch anything. And so we were getting bored, and uh, Chance was like, dude, let's go. And so... um, We started to pack up our stuff and before we took it to the truck, he goes, oh my gosh, dude, I got some fireworks in the trucks. Let's shoot some fireworks. And so, uh, so we went to the truck and got some fireworks out and, uh, started shooting fireworks, um there's this distribution center like about 30 minutes away that you could buy fireworks year round as long as you had an out-of-state license which I did uh from Texas and so I would like take orders drive uh to this place and buy like you had to buy 25 dollars or more it made no sense the the rule but I'd buy like 100 bucks worth of fireworks bring back distribute them you know and so he had a bunch of bottle rockets like the small bottle rockets that I think are against the law now and so we just got these things out and started shooting them and uh and I mean this is so dumb like two college guys standing out by this lake shooting bottle rockets by themselves uh, but at one point we're like dude let's try to hit that that log and so you know we shot a couple and you can't control where a bottle rocket goes if you've ever shot one before uh, but I shot one bottle rocket and it goes straight up in the air and then literally just goes and like lands right on that log and immediately the log just goes under the water now if you've ever like shot a tiny bottle rocket and seen a big log you know a tiny bottle rocket cannot make a big log like that move. So it goes, pop, hits the top of the the log. The log goes under the water. And we're like, oh my gosh, maybe that was an alligator. And we're just standing there frozen. And next thing you know is you saw, you ever seen a fish swim close to the top of the water? There's a wake that kind of follows it. Yeah, we saw a wake about this big going like this across the top of the water straight towards us. And we're like, oh my gosh, it's an alligator. It gets to about like, I don't know, four rows from me and just goes, makes this big splash and disappears. We're standing here on the bank. and We're like, oh shoot. You know, so we start grabbing our stuff and we go and we get in the truck and uh, we, we got out of there and we got back to campus. We never saw it again. We got back to campus and we're like, surely, surely like there's not alligators in Arkansas. So we start asking around and sure enough, there are alligators in Arkansas. <laughs> and they had, like, uh, recruited them in, recruited alligators. They had brought alligators in uh, because they wanted to control the, the, the beavers there because the logging industry is so big, so the alligators would eat the beavers. And we actually started to find, somebody's like, oh, oh, beavers. Oh so we actually started to find out that the alligator population was actually a problem. They didn't think about the fact that the alligators would take out all the beavers. And now there's like too many alligators because there's no predator of the alligators. So anyways, we're like, oh my gosh, I totally hit an alligator with a firework and uh, it was just nuts that we have alligators in Arkansas, so we never fished in that spot again. Uh, why do I share that story, though? I share it because here we are. We're picking up, uh, what is this, week three of Exodus? Week three, last week, Preston took us up to the end of Exodus 6. And by the way, what an incredible sermon. I mean, he, he pointed out the fact that sin, it demands, it distracts, and it destroys, but praise God that God delivers. And he took us up to chapter 6, and what we're seeing is this. We're seeing Pharaoh, it's, it's like, it, it, it's, it's almost like he keeps shooting fireworks at God. You know, like testing God, trying to provoke God to see if he's actually real, because it was like he was saying, man, this God of Israel, he's not real, but if he is, you guys watch this, because it's going to wake him up. Pew, you know, shoots a firework at him. And if he's, if he's Exodus 5, verse 1 and 2, he says something significant, and really he makes a big mistake. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, he says, he asks the question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? You've got to understand, the rest of Exodus is God's answer to that question. Him asking that question, like that's the moment that sets in motion the worst period of history in in Egypt's like whole story. And from that point on, really, the next few chapters of Exodus, it shows this account of God's initial response to Pharaoh. And so we pick up, I'm going to actually go back to Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 10, Exodus 10. It says this, so the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me for I am of uncircumcised lips? But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so now you skip to chapter 7, verse 1, and we kind of pick up where that story picks up. And it says, and the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out 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 of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel among them. Verse six says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Now Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, eighty-three years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh, which says God can use anybody, even when you're retired. But Exodus seven to twelve now is where God unleashes these ten plagues on Egypt and absolutely like wreaks havoc, completely, honestly destroys the people and uh, and, and the in the in the country. Like he rips them to shreds. So first plague he sends he. Uh, he he takes their main water source, the Nile River. and He turns it into blood, or at least this red, undrinkable substance. Followed by that was uh, he sends frogs, and followed by that he sends gnats, and then he sends flies, and then he uh, he he kills the livestock of all of the uh, all of the Egyptians. And if you look at chapter nine, verse four, it says he didn't touch any of the Israelites' livestock, and they're all living there together. But he didn't touch their livestock; only the Egyptians' livestock. And after that, he sends this plague of boils on the people. I mean, these painful boils that they were getting. Then he sends hail that destroys all of their crops, and then he sends locusts that destroys whatever remained of the crops, and then he sends this darkness, and chapter 10, verse 21, says it was a darkness that could be felt. Like, you ever, <clears throat> you ever been in a dark place where it's like you can't see anything? None of us have been in a place that was as dark as it was in Egypt when he sent the ninth plague. And then he sent the tenth plague, and the tenth plague was he was going to kill the firstborn male of all of the Egyptians. I mean, God wreaks havoc on Egypt all because Pharaoh didn't listen to God. And this is often one of the points where we kind of stop and we start to draw conclusions and make applications, which sounds something like this. Man, don't mess with God. I'm from Texas, there's a slogan. Don't mess with Texas. Like, that's what I hear. Don't shoot fireworks at God. Don't try to provoke God. God. And the fact that God is massive and he's powerful and he's jealous for his name and for his people and for his plan, it's a big thing to understand. Nothing can defeat God's plan. Like not even a powerful, uh, strong army can defeat God's plan. God avenges his name. He avenges his people. He avenges his plan. But you got to hear this. That's only, only half of what's happening here. And I can prove it to you. Look at chapter 7, verse 13, so God sends Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh and he says, hey, you gotta, let, you gotta let my people go or there's gonna be like some plagues and judgment and all this stuff that's gonna come to you. But before he sends the plagues, he actually does this kind of miraculous thing with Moses and Aaron. And even after Moses, or Pharaoh saw this miraculous thing, it says in verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then you get to chapter seven, verse 13. Verse 23, he sends the first plague. And it says, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not, he did not take even this to heart. So the, the whole Nile River turns to blood. And again, his heart was hardened. Chapter 8, verse 15, after the second plague, it says, It says, He hardened, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Third plague, verse 19, it says, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Chapter eight, verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. Chapter nine, verse seven. And Pharaoh, it says, or it says the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. Chapter nine, verse 12, sixth plague. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Chapter nine, verse 35. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Chapter 10, verse 20, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why didn't the first nine attempts from God work on Pharaoh? We got to ask that question. Have you ever asked that question? I mean, is it because God thought, oh, you know, I can just like turn the nile into blood and it'll work. And then he was like surprised by the resilience of God or the resilience of Pharaoh. Do you think he was surprised by Pharaoh's resilience? So he just realized, oh, I got to try much, much harder than that. No, that's not what's happening here. In fact, the reality is God could have, with the stroke of his hand, just completely ended Egypt, annihilated them. them. Proof of that is Sodom and Gomorrah. Proof of that even more is the flood that he just wiped out the whole earth. He could have done that, but he didn't. And so we got to ask why. Why didn't the first nine plagues defeat Pharaoh? And here's your answer. God wasn't simply avenging his name against Pharaoh. God was preparing his people to be his people. And not only was he preparing his people to be his people then, but he was paving the way for us to be his people now. If God was only concerned about shutting Pharaoh down and getting Israel out of there, he would have just done it. Ten plagues, forget that. He would have just done it, but that's not all that God was concerned about. God proves in this text that thousands of years ago, long before Jesus ever set foot on the earth, he was thinking about you and me. He proves through this long before Jesus ever came that he was preparing the way for you and for me to be his people, free from sin, free from death, and free to live for eternity and free to live now the life to the fullest. You go to chapter 12, verse one, it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, he said, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for his household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Verse seven, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. I mean, that's kind of gross. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Go back to verse 2. Verse 2 says, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. In other words, the thing that God was about to do was going to be something really significant. And actually, remember what God said last week in chapter 6? Chapter 6, Preston read this. This was kind of like the culmination of last week's message. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give to you for a possession. I am the Lord. God, he promised that he would bring them out from under their burdens. He promised that he would deliver them from slavery. He promised that he would redeem them with his outstretched, strong arms. He promised that he would take them to be his people. He promised that he would become their God. And so you fast forward to Exodus 12, this was the moment that God was finally gonna do that. And all of Israel's history from here forward and, and still to this day would be traced back to this monumental moment. This would be the beginning of months. This moment was about so much more than just them being relieved of their hard work. This moment was about them becoming a whole new people. He was giving them a new identity. He was giving them a new purpose. He was making them a new nation. He was giving them a new citizenship. No longer would Pharaoh be their king, God would be their king. And so you look at this, verse 3 of chapter 12. a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And and listen to this. He says, you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. So for two weeks, keep it in your house, a little baby, cute little lamb. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is together, you shall kill it that evening. Now I'm trying to like, pictures. I mean, God gives them some very clear and precise instructions to follow. Most simply put, here's what he says. He says, take a lamb, not just any lamb. Take your best lamb, then I want you to kill it. But, but I want you to picture this. I'm trying to like think, how do I bring this into our world? He says, go find, like, seriously, your best little baby lamb, a year old, tiny little dude, cute little dude, and take it into your house, keep it for two weeks. I'm, I'm trying to picture like what the kids are thinking about this lamb. They're probably naming the lamb. They're probably like fighting over who gets to sleep in their bed, or whose lamb gets to sleep in their bed, or whose bed the lamb gets to sleep in. You know what I'm saying? And, and they're probably falling in love with this little lamb. It made me think of this. So uh, when I was a kid, we had a dog until I was about five. And my parents came to us and said that they had to, uh, uh, there was a family that lived on a really beautiful farm that wanted to take our dog. And uh, so we gave our dog to this family. It clicked with me about actually only about five years ago that, oh, my gosh. They didn't take my dog to a farm. They killed my dog. Um, but in high school, so for like from five years old until high school, I was like, I was like uh, wanting a dog. In my sophomore year of high school, uh, I was in my room one night, my mom comes up to me, or she comes in my room, and she says, hey, do you still want a dog? And I was like, but that came out of nowhere. Yes. I said, why, why do you ask? And she goes, because our friends uh, just had a litter of puppies. They want to give us a puppy. And I was like, that's awesome. What kind of, what kind of dog? And she said, well, that's the thing. Uh, it's a miniature poodle. And I was like, no, nope, hard pass. I don't want it and so uh, that was the end of the conversation well the next day I got home from school came into my room to put my bag down and I see this tiny little kennel in my room and I was like no she didn't so I go over there to the kennel and I squat down I open the little door and this cute tiny little white miniature poodle comes crawls out in my lap and just snuggles his head against me and I said you will forever be named Lloyd I named him after my favorite character, my favorite movie at the time, which you can try to figure out what movie that is. But I named him Lloyd, and I actually have a picture of Lloyd when he's a little bit older. Uh, this is Lloyd right there. <clears throat> that was actually right before we put him down. But, um, anyways, <laughs> I'm just trying to <laughs> bring us into this moment where he's saying about these lambs bringing them into your house for two weeks bring them into your house for two weeks get close to this lamb and it's got to be your best lamb and notice the two qualifications for this lamb you can take the picture down notice the two qualifications for this lamb it said one it's got to be without blemish one of the qualifications what it had to be was it had to be without blemish no broken bones no abnormalities no injuries no weaknesses no weird marks on his coat. And the other qualification was it had to be a male, a year old. In other words, it had to be young and it had to be a reproducer. It had to have a lot of life ahead of it. God wanted the most valuable lamb these people had to offer. He didn't want something that was easy for them to give up. He wanted something that was difficult for them to give up. He wanted something that was costly. We got to ask the question, why? Why kill a cute little lamb? And he doesn't really explain, and I'm sure these people had their questions, but here's the reality. The reality is, God, he was up to so much more in this moment than just like trying to free the Israelites from Egypt. He was paving the way for you and for me to one day be his people, free from sin, free from death, and free to live for eternity, free to live this life to the fullest now. And you look further, verse seven says. Then they shall take some of the blood. So they've killed the poor little dude. They take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Don't eat it. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. I don't know why that's funny to me, but verse ten. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. None of it. Let none of it remain. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. So they were then to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost doorpost and the lintel or the uh, crossbeam of the doorway. And then they were also to eat all of the lamb. In other words, they weren't supposed to just pick and choose the parts they wanted. They were to eat it all. And just as much as the young, unblemished lamb was part of the specific instruction, so was the blood on the doorpost. And just as much as the blood on the doorpost was part of the specific instruction, so was the instructions to eat it all. Not just parts of it that they liked and chose. Now again, at this point, the people have to be asking the question why. And once again, God doesn't explain why, but once again, the reality is God was up to so much more in this moment than just trying to set his people free from Israel. He was paving the way for us to one day be his people. He was paving the way for us to one day be set free from our sin, set free from death, set free to live for eternity. And then you get to verse 11. Verse 11 In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Eat it fast. It's the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt at night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. So they were to eat it quickly for really no other reason than the fact that God was gonna come quickly. And he was gonna unleash his wrath really, really soon on Egypt. And anybody who hadn't completed this or done this, like they would not be spared from the wrath that was coming. And they were to eat it dressed and ready to go because they were to eat it in expectation that God was gonna do something. They were to eat it with this expectation that God was about to change their circumstances. And then you get to verse 13 where it says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Pay close attention to what he says here. Verse 13, he doesn't say, when I see you. What does he say? He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. You know, going all the way back to Exodus 2, week one of the series, it was the people's cry that moved God to act, but it was not the people's cry that saved them. It was the blood of the little lamb painted on the doorpost of the home that they were in. So if you skip ahead to verse 21, it says, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and he said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel." And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So this is where I want you to actually visibly see this picture. So um, this is a doorpost, uh, or this is like a door frame. And, and so he says, "Moses, go, go do this." And so Moses, he gathers the elders of Israel, and he says, "Guys, go get the little lambs, get them into your house and kill them, take the blood." And then get, he says, get a, some, some hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that they used to sprinkle blood on things. that was known for like its, I don't know, I think it was known for like its healing power. So uh, this paintbrush is like the hyssop. And he said, take the blood and, and, and paint it on the doorposts. Paint it on the doorpost. Make sure it's on both doorposts, on the lintel. This is the lentil. Get in on the lentil. And, and then he says, as he's telling them to do this, he says, look, you need to do this quick because God, he's, he's about to come and he's gonna strike Israel. He says, he says I'm, gonna, I'm gonna strike Israel, but he says, on any house where I see the blood, I'm gonna pass over and my wrath will not hit that house. But you've gotta notice something that he says here. Look at verse 22. What does he say in verse 22? He says, Tell the people to get in the house and stay there until morning. So this is what they did. They put the blood on the doorpost and then they say, get in the house and don't come out till morning. So the people got in the house. Why do you think he told them to get in the house? Do you remember what he says in verse 13? When I see what I'll pass over. When I see the blood, not when I see you, when I see the blood. He says, get in the house and stay in the house until morning because the only way that they would be protected from the wrath of God is if they were inside the house that had the blood on the doorposts. And so that's what they did. And then you look and you see the result. Verse 29 It says at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn, all, key word, the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh. So like highest firstborn in all the land from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, the lowest in all the land and all the firstborn of the livestock, which is worth pointing out here. God's wrath wasn't selective based on social class or economic status. It was selective based on who was in the house with the blood on the doorpost. And it goes on and he says, verse 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said up, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said, which is crazy because think about this. Think about this. I know you know where this is going. Pharaoh was done because his firstborn son had just been killed. Get out from among my people, he says, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. You get to verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. They'd been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years and they'd finally been set free. They'd finally been set free. They were no longer under the rule of Pharaoh. They were now under the rule of God. They had this new freedom, They had this new king, they had this new land, this new identity, this new life. And you've gotta hear this. Preston said it last week, Israel's story is so much like our story. In fact, in many ways, this story helps us better understand our own story. Their story actually is the beginning of our story. And in case you're not seeing this already, let me just connect the dots for you. Going back to last week, Preston said, we're all stuck in sin. I mean, just like the Israelites, we're all enslaved in Egypt. All of us are enslaved in sin. And think about this. They had been enslaved for how many years? What did it say? Do you remember? 430 years, which means this generation that is experiencing God setting them free, they had been born into slavery. All of us have been born into slavery, not in Egypt, but into sin. And go back to where we started tonight. Why didn't the first nine attempts from God work on Pharaoh? Did God think that he could defeat Pharaoh with the bloody Nile River? And he was like, oh shoot, Pharaoh's more resilient than I thought, so I got to try harder? No, this was a super intentional move by God. Remember, God, he's preparing his people to be his people. And he wanted them, and listen, he wants you and he wants me to see that there's only one way to be set free from slavery. He did it this way because he wants us to see that there's only one way to become God's people, just like there were nine plagues that didn't work. There's a lot of ways that we try to break free from sin. There's a lot of ways that we try to save ourselves from the wrath of God. There's a lot of ways that we try to get right with God. And for some of you, that's like you're here. That's why you're here. You're like trying to be a better person and start coming to churchy stuff more often. We try to be more religious. We try to be more spiritual. Get in touch with our spiritual side. You know, discover spiritual stuff. We try to be more giving. We give to charity. We try to do good works. We try to better ourselves through counseling, 12-step programs, reading motivational stuff, going to conferences and things. But only one thing works. And you see what that is. Go back to Exodus 12, verse 3. Says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Listen, there's only one thing that works. There has to be the sacrifice of a life. But in the same way that not just any lamb would do, not just any life will do. It had to be perfect and without blemish. You have to understand, this is why we need Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus was the only man to live a perfect, sinless life. He's the only person without blemish or spot. 1 Corinthians 5 7 says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus was sacrificed for us. He was crucified on a cross for us. He is our Passover lamb. There's only one thing that works. There has to be a sacrifice of a life. Look at verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Listen, there has to be blood. There has to be blood. Leviticus 17, 11, your favorite book of the Bible says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Hebrews nine twenty two says, "Indeed, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." But not just any blood will do. For the longest time, I could—I I was never able to give blood because I was leaving. I was traveling uh, out of the country all the time to these countries where it's like they're on a list. If you've been to this country, then you can't give blood. And honestly, I was glad because I'm scared of needles. Uh, but my blood was not suitable. And in the same way, none of our blood is suitable to save us from our sins. Only Jesus' blood is suitable to save us from our sins. Again, Hebrews 9 says in verse 12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from from dead works to serve the living God. Only one thing will work. There's gotta be a sacrifice of life. There's gotta be blood and not just any blood will do. And then you look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, In this manner you shall eat it. Listen to this part. You shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. Eat it fast. It is the Lord's Passover. Listen, there must be urgency and expectancy. There is no time to wait. There's no time to discuss. God is coming sooner than you think. Your last breath could be sooner than you think. In the same way Israel needed a Passover moment, every single one of of us in this room need a Passover moment. We all need our beginning of months, that moment where God's promise of redemption gets applied to our lives. And this is where it comes home. Look at verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Can you see it? Like this is what God has done and this is what God was doing all those years ago. He was paving the way not just for his people to be set free from Egypt but for us to be set free from sin, for us to be set free from death and that's why he sent Jesus, the perfect unblemished lamb to the earth to be sacrificed To shed his blood on a cross. You got to understand, God provided the lamb through Jesus. We don't have to provide the lamb, God provided the sacrifice for you. You don't have to make your own sacrifice. And you know what's crazy? God, even, he went to the trouble of painting the blood on the crossbeams, on the doorposts for you. We don't even have to do that. Listen, our only responsibility is this. It's to choose where we stand. Think back to verse 22. What does he say? He says, none of you, shall go out the door of his house until the morning. They had to be inside the house for the blood of the lamb to take effect. They had to be inside the house for the blood of the lamb to cause God's wrath to pass over. And in the same way, we must be in Christ in order for the blood of the lamb, the blood of Christ to take effect in our life. Here's another way to think about it. They had to be behind the doorposts with the blood on it in order for the blood of the lamb to take effect and cause God's wrath to pass over. In the same way, we must be behind the cross in order for the blood of Christ to take effect in our life. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, it says this, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you realize this makes the most important question for you to ask and answer tonight this, where are you standing in reference to the cross? Are you hidden behind the cross? See, many of you, you're standing beside the cross. You acknowledge that it's there. And you want it to be a part of your life, but you don't want it to be your whole life. And so you, this is kind of how your life works. Like you kind of do your own thing over here, right? And, and there's different reasons that you end up coming back and standing next to the cross. You know, for a lot of you, it goes back to what I said earlier, the nine, the nine plagues that didn't work. Like you're caught in this thing, trying to like save yourself. These things that won't work. You you you're living your life. You feel bad. You feel you know maybe condemned in your sin, convicted in your sin, whichever word what matters right now. And 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 so you like all right. Well, I'll come back and get you know stand next to the cross for a little bit. It makes me feel better about myself. It's just superstition. Some of you that's why you're here tonight, because it you know kind of appeases your conscience, so that you can go back and keep doing your thing the rest of the week. You're not hidden behind the cross. You're standing beside it. Others of you, you're actually standing in front of the cross. You want God to be part of your life, but only on your terms. God, you get behind me. You prop up my plans. You prop up my dreams. You prop up, you help me accomplish what I want to do with my life. You're in front of the cross. You're not hidden behind the cross. But remember Exodus 12, 13. What does he say? He doesn't say when I see you. I'll pass over. What does he say? He says, when I see the blood. What is he going to see when he looks at you? That's all dependent on where you're standing. In the same way they had to be inside the house for the blood of the lamb to take effect, we have to be in Christ. In the same way they had to be behind the doorpost for the blood of the lamb to take effect, we got to be behind the cross. Where are you standing in reference to the cross? Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This right here is what it means to confess Jesus is Lord. I will follow you. I trust you. This is what it looks like to trust Jesus. This is not trust Like, do you realize this? You can acknowledge Jesus died on the cross and still not trust him. This is not trust. There's only one place to stand in trust and it's right here behind the cross. Some of you need to change where you're standing and you need to do it in haste.